Amen. Psalm 113 through to Psalm 118 are known as the Hallel Psalms or the Hallelujah of the Jews. And these particular Psalms were used by the Jews for praise and thanksgiving and were sung by them at their solemn feasts, feasts like the Passover. This, this psalm was particularly suitable to be sung by the Jews at Passover time as they contemplated the goodness of Jehovah towards Israel concerning their deliverance from Egypt's severe bondage. And therefore this psalm appropriately, in that extent, it appropriately opens with the words, Praise ye the Lord. Praise, O ye servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. You see, no longer were they servants of Pharaoh in captivity and in bondage. But the Lord in his mercy and the Lord in his grace had delivered Israel from this captivity. And they were now the servants of the Lord. And these feasts that the Lord established were times of remembrance when they came together. And times when they sought to praise the Lord for his mercy, for his grace, for his deliverance. Back there in Deuteronomy 5 in the verse 15, Moses, he calls the people of God to remember what the Lord had done for them. And this was to be continually remembered throughout all of their generations. He says there in that particular portion, and remember that thou was a servant in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord thy God brought thee out thence through a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm. In Deuteronomy 15, 15, again he says, And thou shalt remember that thou was a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God, he redeemed thee. And while they were slaves of Pharaoh there in the bondage of Egypt, the Israelites were only ever able to utter groans and great sighs by reason of their hard bondage and the captivity they were in. But the Lord had delivered them he had set them free and now that they had become the servants of the Lord they were to express themselves in praise and in song and in thanksgiving towards the one who was the God of their salvation and praise aloud the name of their great and glorious God the God of their salvation you can very easily as you work your way Uh, your eye down this psalm you can very easily outline this particular psalm the first verse it deals with who is to be praised the verse one opens with these words praise ye the lord praise O ye servants of the lord praise the name of the lord it is jehovah that is to be the object of their praise you will notice there with me the words of the lord are in capital capitals And this points us to Jehovah. Jehovah is the covenant name for God. The one who has graciously covenanted to be his people's salvation. The second verse tells us when we are to praise him. Verse 2 says, Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. You see the Lord is worthy of praise now. And he will ever be worthy of praise Throughout the whole of eternity. For them whom he has delivered from the bondage of sin and the captivity of Satan. 
we will ever be enabled to praise him throughout all eternity. The third verse explains where he is to be praised. Uh, Verse 3 says, From the rising of the sun until the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. Uh, You see the psalmist is thinking here now, uh, from morning to evening, uh, throughout the whole earth, from east to west, the Lord's name is to be uplifted and praised for his greatness, his goodness, his grace, his mercy, uh, towards the fallen sons of Adam's helpless race. But the most of the psalm you will find there, the verses 4 through to 9, it really tells us why. Why he is to be praised. And it is this particular line of thought that I uh, want to look at this evening uh, somewhat. Uh, why we are to praise the Lord. And so the psalmist here begins by exhorting the people of God to praise their great and glorious God. And this is only right for they, you see, above all people have the most reason, the most reason to, to praise him. Back in Psalm 111, the psalmist expresses why this is to be so. When he there says in the verse 1, I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. Verse 9, for he has sent redemption unto his people. He hath commanded his covenant forever. Holy and reverent is his name. And the truth, therefore, this evening that flows from Psalm 113 is... Uh, Although, and as you think about this psalm, and as we will uh, in time this evening go through it, uh, you will see uh, what flows from this psalm 113 is that although exalted in great majesty and unparalleled glory, God has condescended to behold the need of guilty sinners and redeem them from the bondage of their low estate. That's what the psalm tells us. That's what this particular psalm tells. Uh, points us to uh, this evening. In the first place, the first thing I'd like us to see as we consider uh, this particular psalm, you will see the psalmist leads us to consider firstly God's greatness and God's glory. He leads us to consider God's greatness and God's glory. Uh, Look there at the verses 4 and 5 of Psalm 113. The Lord is high above all nations, And his glory is above the heavens, who is like unto the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high. And so in his infinite, eternal, and unchangeable majesty, the God of all glory transcends far, far above all of his creation. This term, the transcendence of God, emphasizes The clear distinction of God in all of his great glory from his creation and his sovereign exaltation far, far above it all. Over in Psalm 145 in the verse 3 there we are taught, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness it is unsearchable. I want you to consider just for a moment this thought of God's glory. In Genesis chapter 1 and the verse 1 we read in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And yet it is true to say that in the eternal expanse before creation and before time began that God 
in the unity of his being as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwelt alone. There was no creation at this time where his glory is now particularly manifest. There was no earth to engage his attention as yet. There were no men or angels to sing yet his praises. No universe to be upheld at this time by the word of his power. There was nothing, there was no one but the triune God alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, altogether complete and infinitely glorious in his eternal being. Over there in Psalm chapter 90 and the verse 2 it says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. In eternity past, God existed in the unity of his being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied and in need of absolutely nothing. You see, God was under no constraint. He was under no obligation and of no necessity to create this universe and to bring everything into being. Creation added nothing to God essentially in his glory for he changes not as Malachi chapter 3 and the verse 6 says. Therefore his essential glory, the glory of God's being, can neither be increased nor decreased. He is, as Romans chapter 9 and the verse 5 says, over all God blessed forever. And so that God chose to create was purely a sovereign act on his part to do so, caused by nothing outside of himself, determined by nothing but his own mere good pleasure. As Ephesians chapter 1 and the verse 11 says, He worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. God freely chose to create this universe simply because it was his sovereign pleasure to do so. He created the world not to get or to add glory to himself because this is impossible, but to display and to manifest his glory in his creation. And so in Psalm chapter 19 and the verse 1, there we read that the heavens, they declare the glory of God. The very firmament, it showeth or it manifests, it displays his very handiwork. And yet we have to say that the greatness of God's glory can, cannot be fully set forth by the whole of this created universe the greatness and glory of God you see it is far higher far greater than creation can display or than heaven itself can sound for his glory is infinite it is incomprehensible verse 5 there says for us this evening concerning the greatness and glory of the God of our salvation, who is like unto the Lord our God, who dwells on high. God's glory, you see, is above the heavens. It is greater than the loftiest part of creation. The very clouds are the dust of his feet. 
The sun, moon, and stars, they twinkle far below his majestic throne. Solomon says there over in Second Chronicles 2 in the verses 5 and 6 when uh, he had built that uh, miraculous, that uh, glorious temple there in Jerusalem, a, a wonder in its day and uh, in his generation. And there Solomon, he confesses and he says, And the house which I have built is great, for great is our God above all gods. But who is able to build him an house, uh, seeing that the heaven of heavens cannot contain him? The psalmist David says in First Chronicles 29, uh, verses 10 and 11, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all it is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord. And thou art exalted as head, as head far above all. Psalm 113, the verse 4 here this evening really emphasizes this. The Lord is high, high above all nations and his glory. It is above, uh, far above his creation. The Lord is high above all nations. And what we have there this evening, when you think about that particular word, the Lord is high above all nations. In the Hebrew, it is exalted. He is exalted above all nations. That is, as the supreme and all-glorious sovereign, he rules over all the nations. He is on a throne which is elevated far, far above all the kings and all the kingdoms of this world. For he is the sovereign ruler of every one of them. In Isaiah chapter 40 there and the verse 15 we read, we read there. Behold the nations are as a drop of the bucket. And are counted as the small dust of the balance. You see this evening that's how we are in the sight of this great and glorious God. We are but the small dust of the balance. There are those, no doubt, in the meeting tonight who can remember going into the corner shop and asking for that quarter of sweets. And the shopkeeper would pour the sweets into the bag. And what is left there, in, uh, even in the pan, is but the dust of the balance. And that's how the very nations of this earth are in comparison to the greatness to the majesty, to the glory of this almighty God, the one with whom we must do, the one whom one day each of us must stand before and give an account of the deeds uh, done in the flesh. But secondly, this evening I want you to see uh, that the psalmist leads us then on, on from considering the greatness and the glory of uh, the one who inhabits eternity. And the psalmist leads us to consider God's Gracious condescension towards us. I find this a wonder tonight. As you read this particular psalm. And you consider the greatness and the glory and the majesty. Of the one who inhabits eternity. That the psalmist there in the verse 6. He goes on to say. That he humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven. And in the earth. Alongside these great truths that we have been considering, 
about this self-sufficient, self-satisfied, in need of absolutely nothing, all-glorious God. The Bible sets forth the tremendous and the gracious reality that this God has graciously, has graciously condescended to save men and women who are lost in sin and held captive in sin's bondage. Verse 6 says that he humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. Let us just ponder upon this verse for a little time this evening. You think tonight about those heavenly angels whom he upholds in their being and admits into his presence, the cherubim, the seraphim. He accepts their service, which though pure and perfect, is condescension on his part to to do so. Since the very cherubim and seraphim are but creatures before this almighty God. These glorious beings themselves are as nothing in comparison to him. And they must veil their very faces when they come before this all-glorious God. Consider the glorified saints, those who were once the fallen sons of Adam's helpless race, who are now in heaven, who are constantly before his view and are favored with his intimate communion. Oh, how unworthy even they are before such an all-glorious God. And yet he humbles himself to behold uh, lower than this. He beholds the things that are in, in the starry heavens, the sun, the moon, the very stars, which he preserves and he directs all of these things in their very courses, having in creation set them into their very motion. He calls them by their names and because of his power, the power of Almighty God, not one of them fails. Uh, Not one of them. He looks lower still. And he beholds the things that are in in the airy heavens. There is not one meteor or cloud that flies through this sky. Or wind that blows. But he observes. He guides. he He directs. He feeds the very fowls of the air we're taught in scripture. And not so much as a sparrow actually falls to the ground in this world without his knowledge and without the direction of his omnipotent will. He also humbles himself to behold the things that, that are on earth. Every wild beast of the forest, the cattle and the thousand hills, they, they are his. He gives them their food in due season. He looks down from heaven and he beholds all the children of men. We're taught there in Matthew 5 and the verse 45 that he, he maketh his son to rise upon the evil and on the good and he sendeth rain on the just and he sendeth on the un- unjust. You think there about the common grace of God even towards men. Rebels to grace and rebels to this all glorious and uh, great God. And yet God in his common grace has condescended in such a way to provide even for us. And yet we have to say this evening, we have to say this evening that surely the greatest humbling on the part of God is revealed to us over there in Philippians chapter 2 and the verses 5 through to 8. 
Read there, concerning the eternal Son of God, veiled in human flesh. And there we read, Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, I want you to consider this now, the second person of the eternal trinity, self-contained, self-satisfied, self-sufficient, in need of absolutely nothing. And here we come now to Philippians chapter 2. We consider Christ Jesus, the one who being in the form of God, who thought it not robbery to be with God. But here we read, He made himself of no reputation, and he took upon him the form of a servant. And he was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, these words, He humbled himself, and he became obedient unto death, even the very death of the cross for us. Over there in John chapter 1 and the verses 1 through to 4 we read in the beginning was the word. And we're thinking here again about Christ, the eternal word, the second person of the eternal trinity. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God from all eternity. And the word was, was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. Then verse 14 it says, And the word was made flesh. Can you comprehend that tonight? The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. The one who is full of grace and of truth. You see this evening, in his mercy and in his amazing grace, God, our creator, has revealed himself unto us and has revealed unto us the way of salvation in and through the person and work of his Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, although timeless and eternal, has in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ stepped into time and humbled himself as the very God-man. And as the great mediator of the everlasting covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ, he has bridged that great gulf for us, that gulf that is between men and their sin and nature's darkness, and Almighty, a holy, a just, a righteous God. As that great mediator, days man, redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ has bridged that great gulf for us. The eternal word you see he has subject himself to birth for us. He came forth man from a woman. Bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. Without casting off that which he was. God of very God. Although he assumed flesh and blood. He remained ever what he was. God manifest in human flesh. What a privilege to hear this Tremendous sounding forth in the gospel tonight that he has humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You see, as the representative of his people in that great covenant of grace, the Lord Jesus Christ has on our behalf, you see, he has perfectly kept the law of God in his life. You see, it's the law that we have broken. Every one of us this evening are born into this world as sinners. We are born far from God. We are born into nature's darkness like Israel of old. We're born into the captivity of Egypt. 
and we're in bondage to sin and we're in bondage to Satan. And the Lord Jesus Christ has came and in his life he has kept the law of God for us, working out a perfect righteousness in his law-fulfilling life. And as our substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ has suffered that penalty upon the cross, there dying upon the cross, the just for the unjust. You see, it is to redeem and to reconcile us unto God and God unto man. What a tremendous work he accomplished. He was made, you see, as the scripture teaches, he was made sin for us. Our sin was laid upon him and there upon the cross. He was the one as our substitute and as our sacrifice and as our sin bearer. He was the one who bore our sins in his own body to the tree. And the wrath of God was poured out upon him because he stood in our place. Condemned he stood. He sealed our pardon with the shedding of his own precious blood. And we can say this evening, hallelujah. What a saviour we have in Jesus Christ. We thought about it this morning. And therefore because of who Christ is and what Christ has done in the humbling of himself, becoming obedient unto death, the very death of the cross, payment God will not twice demand. First at Christ our bleeding shirt his hand. And then again at ours. In the third place this evening we see the psalmist here. He also leads us to consider God's grace, God's grace towards undeserving sinners. You see, that's what we read there, uh, particularly in the verse number seven, where it says that he raiseth up the poor out of the dust. And you see, he lifts the needy out of the dunghill. In his mercy towards sinners, we have seen tonight that God has revealed himself to us in Christ and the way of salvation through Christ and in grace, you see, he draws undeserving sinners savingly unto himself through Christ and by the power, the irresistible power of the Holy Spirit. You know, I can say to you this evening from the authority of Scripture and this particular verse here that there is no one more poor, there is no one more needy than a guilty hell-deserving sinner. And yet this is the individuals whom the Lord in grace stoops to save, such as are undeserving. You will find here in this particular verse of this psalm that the picture is here that of the dunghill. And if there's any in here tonight who are farmers, you will know in particular what the dunghill actually is when you come to it. You see the scripture says that he, he lifts the needy out of the dunghill that from whereon they lay like worthless rubbish, cast off in their natural condition, cast off and cast out. You see, in their natural condition and bondage to sin and to Satan, they were there left to rot in the dunghill of sin, left to rot into everlasting destruction and to be left and everlastingly forgotten and cast out for all eternity. And you see how, how great, how gracious, how merciful a stoop from the heights of his throne to the dunghill in which we were found in our natural condition and in our sin. How wonderful is that power which occupies itself in lifting up such filthy, rotten, undeserving sinners 
as we are all fouled in the filthiness in which we lay. What a dunghill was that upon uh, which you and I uh, lay by nature uh, in our sinful condition. What a mass of corruption in our original and in our depraved state before this great and this glorious God. What a heap of loathsomeness that we even had accumulated by our own sinful lives because we're born as sinners and we practice sin and sin against God in thought and word and deed. What a reeking stench in the nostrils of an almighty and a holy God has had arisen to almighty God's nostrils. The awful stench of our sin before almighty God. You know I say to you this evening, sinner, you can never rise. We could never have arisen out of all of this by our own efforts. We were helpless on dawn, on clean, cast off, cast out, in the very dunghill even of sin. You know, this lifting of the needy out of the dunghill, it is exactly what happened to a man in Scripture by the name of Mephibosheth over there in Second Samuel. Uh, and the chapter 9, and there over in Second Samuel chapter 9, we have revealed to us the story of how uh, King David, and uh, there we have a picture of the greater King David in the spiritual sense, and how that King David reached down in mercy and uh, rescued one of his lowly, helpless uh, subjects. Mephibosheth was a man who was found at a particular time in the gutter, an outcast in Israel, uh, but through the compassion of King David, he was delivered from that awful state and was given a position of great security, of blessing, and of prosperity because of, of the consideration of King David. Uh, David considered Mephibosheth's need. He saw Mephibosheth where he was in the gutter. Mephibosheth was but a, a dead dog in the sight of the king. You know, you can have these, uh, these tremendous parallels in the gospel. You see, our condition by nature is just like Mephibosheth, a dead dog in the sight of the greater King David. And yet the greater King David, he is the one who has considered us in all of our need. He came to where we were. He identified himself with us, and took our humanity into union with himself and humbled himself that he might lift us. And you will note the words of King David found in verse 1 of Second Samuel chapter 9 where he says, is there, a, is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? You see, verse 1 there indicates for us that the king here, uh, the king sought for Mephibosheth. It wasn't, it wasn't vice versa. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. But I rejoice this evening that there is one who came to seek there's one who came to save uh, that which was lost. David in verse uh, 1 refers to any left of the house of Saul. You think about Mephibosheth. He was the member of a rebellious house. Uh, Saul had rebelled. Uh, Saul had, fell in fr had fallen from his uh, former estate, the position that he enjoyed uh, as the king. He was the member of a house uh, whose head Saul was a failure. Saul was a failure and Mephibosheth was a member of that particular household. And thus Mephibosheth, you could say here, because he was a member of this particular household, he did not deserve the mercy and compassion of David, who was, uh, was now the king. 
You know it's the same for us when you think about it in the spiritual realm this evening. You see each of us are born into this world uh, as members of a rebellious household, uh, the posterity of Adam. And then Adam, and because of the fall, we're born into this world in sin, and we are shaping in iniquity. And we are members in that sense of a rebellious household, uh, a household that should be destroyed and cast off uh, and cast out. And yet I say to you this evening that there's one who has come, Uh, from the heights of glory. There is one who has considered, just like King David considered the need of Mephibosheth, there is one who has considered your need as a sinner. There is one who has humbled himself like David did. And there is one who restores. You see, in Adam we are fallen. But we have the second Adam, the last Adam, who has come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has come to restore all that was lost in the first Adam. And so if you bow the knee tonight in true repentance and exercise faith in Jesus Christ, the one who has came to seek and to save, will save you from your sin, will save you from the depravity, will lift you from the dunghill whereupon. But in the fourth place tonight, the psalmist, he leads us to consider the possession that God gives to those whom he graciously lifts. There is a possession that God gives to those whom he graciously lifts. You see there in, in Psalm 113 and the verse 8, it goes on to say that he may set him with princes. So in the lifting, the Lord, the Lord has humbled himself. He has dealt with our sin. And in his mercy and in his grace, uh, there is this lifting of the sinner from the dunghill, that depravity in which they are, he lifts them. And what does it say in the verse 8? It says that he may set him with princes, even with the princes of his people. And it's very simple tonight. Whenever you consider this, who are princes? They are sons of the king. They are sons of the king. And you see, the Lord does nothing by halves in the lives of his people whom he lifts. When he raises men from the dust and from the dunghill of sin, what does he do? He adopts them into his family. He brings them into his very family. They are brought into union with Christ. And into the very family and into the fold of God. And you can see this also as you consider the life of this man Mephibosheth. Uh, There was no holding back in the restoration that was granted also to Mephibosheth. When when King David lifted him from his awful condition. And brought him as it were into his family. uh, There into his household. Verse 7 of uh, that particular chapter. David says to Mephibosheth. I will restore thee all the land. All the land of Saul, thy father. We have already considered it. Uh, through Saul's failure, Mephibosheth's inheritance was lost. Uh, that inheritance which he would have had through Saul, it was completely lost. Completely lost in Saul. But you see now in David, in King David, there is a restoration. That which Mephibosheth has lost is now restored even through King David. And I say to you this evening, what a, what a vast inheritance has, has been lost in Adam uh, through sin and, and because of the fall. Uh, but you see in the greater King David, in the last Adam, uh, what a restoration there is in that great work that he has accomplished in the humbling of himself and being obedient unto death, the very death of the cross. And so the father says of the son, This is my beloved son in whom I 
am well pleased. And you see in the greater King David, in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a restoration of every spiritual blessing. And in Christ and through Christ we can say to this evening that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11 there of that particular chapter considering Mephibosheth. It refers to him being as, as one of the king's son. We're thinking about that here in the, uh, even in the verse 8. Uh, princes of his people, the king's sons. And verse 11 there refers to Mephibosheth as being one of the king's sons. This position, being a son of the king, uh, had also been forfeited. But now Mephibosheth is raised again. Raised again to that which had been lost. He is, as it were, adopted now into David's family. And here we see the great, uh, the great and tremendous uh, gospel truth of adoption. Over there, in Galatians chapter 4, in the verses 3 to, through to 7, we have uh, these tremendous words, even so we... When we were children, were in bondage. And this is what we've been thinking about tonight. We were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God, he sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law. You know, that, that really, in a way, and I say it reverently tonight, it blows my mind to consider the immensity of the wonder of redemption and the provision of the gospel. He is made under the law. To redeem them that were under the law, the fallen sons of Adam's helpless race, that we might receive the very adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God now has sent forth the spirit of his son into your heart, uh, crying, Abba, Father. And wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God, an heir of God uh, through Christ. Ephesians 2, 6, it says, he hath raised us up together, and he has made us sit together in heavenly places, uh, in Christ Jesus. Second Samuel 9, in the verse 11 through to 13, it tells us then, it goes on to say, that Mephibosheth sat, he sat at the king's table. What a place to be at. He was at one time a dead dog. He was cast off and cast out, just like us in our natural condition, spiritually speaking, in the dunghill of sin. And here we find this man now, the member of a rebellious and a, failed household he has all of his privileges and David restored and he is sitting here now uh, sitting at the king's table you will you will note in the experience of of Mephibosheth uh, if you study that particular portion uh, that he was lame in both his feet because of a fall again a, a picture in the gospel and how that we are lame spiritually speaking because of a fall but here we find this man now and he's sitting at the king's table and you will notice as as he sits at the king's table uh, his, his legs are covered and the fall is covered and what a provision we have in, in this sense in the gospel he is here now, he is enjoying fellowship with King David oh it speaks of fellowship with Christ doesn't it, and that's what we enjoy when we're brought into union with Christ, when we're lifted from the dunghill of sin and we're made the sons of the king, we're brought into that tremendous position of fellowship with Christ and we can say this evening uh, truly our fellowship is with the Father and it is with his Son, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I say to you this evening, if you are here this evening and you are the Lord's, uh, you rejoice this evening in the wonder, the wonder of redemption and the wonder of the provision that is found in the person and in the work 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely this evening, for those of us who are the Lord's, uh, we, are, we are humbled. Uh, surely our minds are caused to wonder in awe and reverence at uh, the one who inhabits eternity, his greatness, his glory, and yet the second person of that eternal trinity humbled himself, considered us in all of our need in the dunghill of sin, has lifted us out of uh, the wretchedness of our lost estate, has brought us into union with himself, into all the blessings of the gospel that he accomplished in his life and in his death. And we have a table of endless provision that is before us. And we can, this evening, for those of us who are saved, we can read our titles clear to mansions in the sky. Maybe you're here this evening, you're still outside of Christ, even from the very youngest through to the oldest. And here you are in the house of God again this evening. Uh, having the privilege to sit under the sound of the word of God and yet you're still in nature's darkness you you are as the scripture teaches here uh, you're still in, in the dust spiritually speaking you're still in the dunghill of your sin uh, you're still as it were wallowing about in the depravity in which you're held captive and bondage to sin and to Satan and I say to you this evening there's one who has come to seek and to save that which is lost there's one who this evening can restore to you everything that has been lost in Adam. It is restored and more in Jesus Christ. And I say to you tonight, in and through the authority of the gospel, would you, sinner, this evening not taste and see? Taste and see that the Lord is good. We thought this morning about the prodigal. And there in the far country, what was his, what was his mind caused to dwell upon that, that brought him to his senses, the, the Holy Spirit being at operation in his life? It was that there was bread in the Father's house. We thought about Christ, the bread of life. There is found, you see, I say to you this evening, sinner, there is found in Christ an all-sufficient supply to meet you in all of your need. Come to him tonight, taste and see that the Lord is good. Flee from the wrath which is to come. And feed the Christ, who this evening alone is the way, the truth, and the very life. May you be obedient to the call in the gospel tonight. May the Holy Spirit deal with your heart and deal with your soul. And woo you and win you and bring you irresistibly to Christ. And be saved for time and for all of God's eternity. We'll close our meeting tonight just in a word of prayer. And we're going to ask for the Lord's blessing just to be upon his word. And to do and accomplish that which he alone can do tonight. Our Lord and dear Heavenly Father, again we come humbly before Thee. We have been thinking tonight of the greatness and the glory and the majesty of the One who is the God of our salvation. And we, we come to thank Thee tonight, Father, that You ever, uh, in Christ, that there was that humbling, that You sent forth Christ, made of a woman, made under the law, and that He came into this world, humbled Himself, and became obedient unto death, even the very death of the cross. And so we rejoice in the finished work of Christ tonight. We rejoice that there is salvation from sin. That there is that lifting uh, from the dunghill of sin. And that sinners can come and bow the knee in true repentance. And exercise faith in Christ. And the word of God says, him that comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. So we pray tonight you'll take that which has been of thyself. Bless it to all of our hearts. Save the lost, we pray. Get for yourself the glory. And may your kingdom be extended tonight and may there be added unto the church throughout this world such as should be saved. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Part us the one from the other. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen and amen.